Thank you for praying for me while I was in Mozambique. I got back Friday night, so my prayer today, because I'm in a different time zone, is that I don't put myself to sleep in my sermon. And you as well. <laughs> it's good to be back. I pre truly appreciate your prayers. You know, when, you, um, when you're a pastor or a public speaker, one of the things you have to get used to in today's world is that anything you say can be used against you uh, because it's going to be on the Internet. It's only a matter of time. I routinely get emails from around the world asking me questions about my sermon. And um, in fact, I get emails about asking us about our offering practice because often that gets recorded and put out there as well. So you just get used to it. When you're in the classroom, you get students that are recording, and next thing you know, it's somewhere on the Internet. And uh, I'm used to that. I'm okay with that. What I'm not used to and what I'm terrified of is what happened a week ago on Sunday, today. I was in a church in uh, Maputo, Mozambique with a bunch of Africans, and they love to dance and sing, and it's, it's just... It's just crazy. And um, next thing I know is uh, two guys grabbed me from behind and drug me up front to dance <laughs> with all the Africans. It hasn't made it to Facebook yet. <laughs> I'm just wondering if somebody got it on video. I'm hoping not. <laughs> so that's what happened. On behalf of uh, the pastors in Mozambique, I would like to extend their gratitude to you. They wanted me to tell you thank you for sending me. They're very grateful. And um, we now have churches in Nepal and churches in Haiti and churches in Mozambique that pray for our church because they're grateful. They're grateful. I want you to picture this. Most of you would probably be a little terrified if, you, we, asked you to be, uh, if we asked you to come up here and preach a sermon, Right? I'm guessing that would make most of you nervous and afraid. Um, imagine becoming a senior pastor of a church with no training. Very little, if any, training. In fact, you haven't even been a Christian for very long. And you're raised in, in a cultural environment that uh, is syncretistic. In other words, it brings a bunch of religions together and they all get jumbled up. Um, you have animistic theology. You have... Um, ancestral worship where you have been taught that your ancestors who have died ahead of you they're closer to god than you are and so you your better chance of getting to god is to pray to them and ask them to help you get there uh, and catholicism it all comes together and so you come out of that and you come to know christ and and god puts it on your heart to become a pastor and, and you start pastoring a church but uh, boy you know very little about this book and you're trying your best to make sense of Christianity in a world that's so confusing. That's what we had, and that's what we have in these countries where we go. So when you send me overseas, I get the chance to come in and train these pastors and help them think through some of these foundational Christian principles and help them to wrestle with, what does it mean to take this principle into my own culture? So, for example, uh, one of the things I learned when I was there was, you know, the witch doctor may use the feathers and dips it in something, blood or something, to bless you. And um, so they just replaced that with beads because they saw Catholics doing that. And somehow it, it makes it Christian without ever really changing their understanding as to as far as what's going on there. And so to take these principles for these, these young pastors, these inexperienced pastors, and teach them these things, they're just very grateful. So their request was to ask me to say thank you on their behalf. So thank you for sending me, and thank you for praying for me. And uh, I did get back Friday night. It's a long flight back. 
The middle flight alone is 17 hours. So I was, uh, I was ready to get home. About 3 o'clock today, I won't know what part of the world I'm in. <laughs> All right. What happened in Mozambique is very similar in some respects to what's going to happen in Esther. How many of you have actually read Esther and know the story? Let me see your hands. Okay, good. So a bunch of you do. I'm not going to take you through and read the whole book. There's 10 chapters. We wouldn't have time to do that. What I want to do is weave you through the main story so you capture a sense of what God is doing. When I travel overseas, I'm a Gentile, and I go to Mozambique, and I'm teaching Gentile pastors. And both of us represent the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Galatians 3, Paul tells us, 3.8 I think it is, that God, he preached the gospel ahead of time to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. And so that's what happened. I'm, the nations are being blessed. So I go, because God has given me training, and I live in a country where I'm blessed to have training. Bill Spear and I were talking this morning how because of our seminary training, we, we represent, even though we're from two different seminaries, we represent the finest education in the world when it comes to uh, making sense of God's word. And very few in the world have that privilege. So we, take, we become a gift and take it out to people. And so we are fulfilling the promise to Abraham that other nations are getting to hear about Christ. Today we're going to look at Esther. Absolutely fantastic, amazing story. Uh, Esther is the story of a young orphan Jewish girl from the tribe of Benjamin who lived in the 5th century B.C., the Jews had now been deported, and she's living in Persia, and she's a nobody, and she rises to the top because God needs her, because there's a problem. You see, we're going to get into the story. What we're going to find out is that uh, uh, through, a, through a series of evil, twisted plots, um, the king of Persia issues an edict that all the Jews must die, genocide. Several times in Scripture... Redemptive history comes right up against the edge of this cliff. And if God doesn't intervene, boom, it's over. And so this is going to raise the question of what's God going to do? Because Satan has pulled a fast one. And uh, the king of Persia has issued a, a royal proclamation, kill all the Jews. And if God doesn't intervene, we won't be here today. So several times in Scripture, that happens. So Scripture gives us incredible stories of how, of how Satan and God are kind of at work in this jockeying on this whole redemptive history and this scheme. And this is one of those stories. And he uses a young orphan Jewish girl. It's filled with irony. The, Esther, the uh, story of Esther is a story of ironies from beginning to end. For example, Esther's a Jewish girl. And uh, chapter 2, verse 10 says, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background, so the king didn't know she was Jewish when he selected her as a queen. And the young Persian girls, it would have been a dream to become a queen, but not for a young Jewish orphan girl. That was not her dream. And so uh, God surprised her. And this is a story of how God works. God's not mentioned in the book. Nowhere is God ever listed. His name's not there. His title's not there. He's never talked about, never discussed, which is one of the anomalies of the book. It's fun because it creates the story filled with irony, filled with suspense, filled with tension. And all the way through the book, we're going to have this perspective. <laughs> There's where God is. God shows up in the most surprising places. So there will be several times when we'll say, it just so happened, wink, wink, coincidental, but we'll know the truth. It's not coincidental. 
We serve the one true living God, and he pulls the strings to orchestrate his goals. We're going to see that all the way through the book. It's just filled with irony. The Jews are almost destroyed by an evil man, and how did God get around that? Well, the basic story, as it unfolds, chapter 1, Queen Vashti is removed. If we could dig into this story deeper than we have time for today, we would find all kinds of questions on cultural values and ethics, for instance, around the role of women and how to treat women. Listen to this. Chapter 1, verse 4. For a full 180 days, the king displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. That's what kings do. Let me show you how good I am. And so when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. And he goes on through this whole paragraph and talks about the incredible decorations that he puts up to impress all the noblemen in Persia. And um, uh, in, verse, in verse 7, it says, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. So you get a hint about what's going on in this, this banquet. A seven-day-long party, you could drink as much as you want. This is a pagan culture. You fill in the blank on what's happening here. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. You could have whatever you want. Open bar. That's what it is. So you get a picture of, the, of the, this pagan banquet and People are drinking, all these noblemen, uh, probably filled with themselves, arrogant, and they're just drinking away. Queen Vashti, verse 9, it's his queen, also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of, king, of the king. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So right off the bat, we have an ethical question. We're not going to solve this ethical dilemma today. But you see what I mean? It raises it. Is this how we treat our women? Do we parade them in front of drunken men? Now, that's objectifying if I've ever heard it. Right? Queen Vashti refused to come. Verse 12. She refused to come. It doesn't tell us why. I have a feeling she had a little more self-respect and dignity and was willing to sacrifice everything. She said no. The king became furious and burned with anger. He became furious. That's chapter one. He removes her from power. He issues an edict that she's never allowed to see his face again. She's done. Now, you have to understand, in the Medo-Persian Empire, whenever a king issued a proclamation or an edict, a royal proclamation, it was law from that time on. You could never undo it. You couldn't do it. You couldn't go back and say, whoops, that was a mistake. Let's uh, do it. Nope. That becomes important in the story. So he issued an edict that she could never see his face again. She's done. So this sets the stage for a dilemma that Satan's going to take advantage of, and we're going to see this incredible this power struggle here between God and Satan. So in chapter 2, Esther is selected as queen. Now, this highlights um, a, the thrilling rise, I think, a 
fantastic story of a young Jewish orphan girl who's a nobody and how God takes anyone to accomplish his purposes. So we're going to see her rise to prominence. In verse chapter 2, verse 1, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So he can't change his mind now. It's too late. It's probably sober. So in verse 2, he says, well, let's start a search for another young virgin to become the next queen. In verse 5, here's one of those kind of that wink-wink where God's not mentioned, but we know who's behind the scenes. Now, there just happened to be in the citadel of Susa, this is the capital, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. He's the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. So remember, the Jews are no longer in their homeland. This is 5th century B.C., and they're all scattered now. They're, they've been taken um, into the various countries where they live. In fact, uh, this is a good time to remind you of this series. I asked Mark to put together this series, and he uh, labeled it Hidden Gems of the Old Testament. His thinking was, he's, he's seen the work that we've been doing with, the, with all of you on helping you get back into the Old Testament more. He, let's go back and take, this is, he said this, let's go back and take a look at these Old Testament characters because they teach us incredible things about God very early in Jewish history. So we've looked at several, haven't we? Next week we're going to look at Ruth. This week is Esther. And every one of them reveals something about this God that we serve that is consistent from beginning to end. And Esther is no different. So this, this um, creates this dilemma right here, chapter 2. So this, we, I find out who Mordecai is, and then we find out about um, Esther. And she goes through this process where um, she kind of beautifies herself, and no one knows who she is. She doesn't advertise her nationality. And through the process, the king, they, uh, they parade these young virgins in front of the king, and he chooses her. And in verse 10, she had not revealed her nationality. So nobody knows that she's Jewish. That's kind of the background. She's entering into a hostile environment. I just read to you about the kinds of parties they had. This is a pagan environment. She's Jewish. She's used to things, trusting in the Lord, perhaps going to the temple. Her people would have. She may have been raised after they left the land. But she knew the stories of the one true God who was in control, and she probably would have heard the stories that the reason why they've been deported is because of their disobedience. That's what God promised in Deuteronomy. He fulfilled it. All right, now, so God, he takes the Jews and he scatters them around the world, but he hasn't forgotten his promise to Abraham. So even though the Jews disobeyed and rebelled, he decides, God, he uses them as they're scattered around the world to fulfill his promise. This is one of those stories where he did not forget his promise to Abraham, and he's going to fulfill it in a unique way. So we have here we have Esther, this young orphan who's now a young, beautiful young lady, has been selected to be the new queen. So you get the idea? See where we are? All right. All of a sudden, in verse 19 of chapter 2, we have this story out of nowhere comes along. Fantastic story. Um, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. And she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, 
Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So we have a plot to overthrow the king. A little bit of suspense. What's going to happen? Mordecai just happened to be sitting there. You get it? It's one of those times. God's never mentioned, but we know the truth, don't we? God just pulls the strings and puts Mordecai at the right spot. He just happens to be there, and he finds out about the plot, so he tells Queen Esther. And the Queen Esther, she reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. So the king was obviously upset, and he um, impales the two officials on poles. Not a nice way to die, by the way. All of this is recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. That's an important statement. We'll see why in a minute. So we have this story out of nowhere pop up. He hears about these people that are going to try to assassinate the king. This sets the stage for what's about to happen. In chapter 3, Haman, uh, a high royal official and friend of the king, decides to destroy, plots to destroy the Jews. Okay? He's angry with them. Chapter 3, verse 5. The royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, Mordecai's behavior would be, uh, would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw, Haman is the evil villain. When Haman saw, or when he would kneel, saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Mordecai is a faithful man, and Haman, we're going to find out, is a very arrogant, proud, boastful pagan. Yet having le learned who Mordecai's people were, he now knows that they're Jewish, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. That was his original thought. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. There it is. So he goes to the king, and the king issues an edict, destroy the Jews. What did the king care He's got a vast empire. He's got plenty of servants and slaves. Okay, you don't like these people? Just kill them. We're standing at the brink of redemptive history right here. Because if the plot is fulfilled, if the evil plot is fulfilled, we will not be here today. Redemptive history comes to an end. So that raises the question in, in all of the Jewish people from now on. This became a very important book in Jewish theology. And in, in our theology, what is God going to do? got to do something. How's he going to do it? So this leads to Jews in the morning, chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly, because the edict had been issued. That's why. And you can't, you can't retract the edict. It's permanent law from that time on. But he went only as far as the king's gate, verse 2, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. You get the story? The Jews are now in mourning. They are now fully in the hands of God. It's one thing to be deported to a foreign country. It's another thing to have that foreign country say, kill them all. If God doesn't intervene, they have no hope. All right. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 4, the story begins to move a little bit. We begin to learn about Esther's faithfulness. She discovers the plan 
and Mordecai requests her to go to the king and beg for mercy. But she's frightened. She says, I might die. Chapter 4, verse 9. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Mordecai had asked her to go beg for the king for mercy. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. This is a royal edict. There's only one law. That person should be put to death. That's the basic law. You weren't allowed to approach the king. The king had to approach you. That person should be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. You see the risk that she's faced with? If she goes to the king unannounced, she has no idea what's going to happen. Mordecai is asking her to put her faith on the line in the form of a sacrifice, her life. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. The moment he finds out you're a Jew, the law is the law. You too will die. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Do you see his faith? God did not forget us. He will, he will rescue us. That is the gospel. He will save us. But you and your father's family will perish if you're not faithful at this time. And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. God put you here for this specific problem. So Mordecai challenges her and she changes her perspective and her willingness to step out in faith. You can't make this stuff up. This is an amazing story. Early on, 5th century B.C., this is amazing of what's happening. So Esther, a little being a little sly, she does something very fascinating. She has a banquet. That's in chapter 5. And her banquet is only for the king and Haman, this evil man. He doesn't know she's Jewish. So she invites only two people to her banquet. And um, so the time came for the banquet. Uh, let's see. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Okay, chapter 5. So the king, uh, first of all, he, she goes into the inner sanctum, and the king extends a gold and says, what, what can I do for you, Esther? In chapter, uh, chapter 5, and the, the king says, What is it, Queen Esther? Verse 3. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So Esther could have asked for anything, and here's what she asked for. If it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. So the king says, boy, absolutely. Why wouldn't you want to go to the banquet with the pretty queen? I mean, she's the prettiest woman in the land. That's why he selected her to be the queen. So the two of them go to the banquet with the king. So they have a private banquet with three of them. You get the story there? You get the picture? So this is designed to reveal the graciousness of Esther and to increase the suspense because Haman's pride is going to start to increase because he begins to tell his friends after this, starting in verse 9, the queen invited me, only me, to a banquet with the king. There's only three of us. That's how important I am. Okay? Esther's just being gracious. She doesn't say a word. So he begins to boast about that. Then you have... Um, God begins to move in chapter 6. Now remember, he's never named here. 
but we know the story. We know who it is behind the scenes. He begins a name, and Haman um, ends up doing something he never would have done. Chapter 6. That night, the king just happened to be awake and couldn't go to sleep. There's another one of those times, kind of we just wink, we smile, because God's not mentioned, but he can't go to sleep. They just had the first banquet, and he can't go to sleep. So he's awake, and he says, well, bring the uh, record of my reign to me. I want you to read it to me, because I want to just be reminded of how good I am as a king of this vast empire. So it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed these two men, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway. So the king asks, hey, what honor and recognition was, did Mordecai ever receive for this? And the attendant said, well, nothing's ever been done for him. He goes, okay, all right. So the king said, who's in the court? Somebody had come in the court. Haman just happened to enter the court. You see these long, these series of ironies that are being exposed here? Coincidences that are not coincidences. Haman just happened to enter the outer court. So the uh, Haman, the, the tenant said, Haman's there. And the king says, bring him in. So when he came in, the king asked him a question. What should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? I mean, I'm the most important person in the kingdom. I'm the king. I mean, I got to have a private banquet with Queen, Va uh, queen Esther. So it must be to honor me. So he says, well, you should put the man on the king's horse, give him the king's royal robe. Parade him around the city and let everybody know. Uh, let everybody know how much the king honors him. <laughs> the king commanded Haman, good idea. Go at once, get the robe and the horse, and do as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> what a turn of events. He's getting ready to kill all the Jews. And now he's told to honor him. This leads to Haman's extreme embarrassment. And this is the first real stage of this unfolding irony. In chapter 7, we have the details of the second banquet. This is the next day, I think. She has a second banquet. She goes in, and the king says, uh, Esther, what can I do for you? It'll be given whatever you ask for. Queen Esther, chapter 7, verse 3. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, you notice the humility? the lack of pretentiousness, no arrogance, placing herself completely at the hands of the Lord. If it has found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life and the life of my people. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So the king says to Esther, who did this? Who is this person that made this happen? Where is he? Now you remember there's three of them sitting there. The king, the queen, and Haman. So the king says to the queen, who is this man that made this happen? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. He's sitting right there. Haman was terrified. I bet he was. 
The king was so enraged, he had to leave. He goes out and walks around the gardens to get his anger under control. While he's gone, story keeps going, Haman begins to beg for his life from Queen Esther. And he did what he should have never done. He reclines on her bed next to her to beg for mercy. He should have never... It's just a rule of thumb. You should never climb in the bed with the queen. Okay? (laughs) And the king comes back at that particular second and said, Wow, not only do you try to kill all these people and deceive me, but you're actually trying to get the queen as well? Execute him. So Haman had had this, uh, this tall gallows built so he could kill the Jews. And the king said, use those gallows. So they impaled him. Haman is executed. That's what happened in the second, the second banquet. Now we begin to move towards victory and celebration, celebration in chapter 8. You see, the author resolves the tension, establishing the irony. The problem we have is that the king's edict still stood, killed the Jews. He can't go back and say, well, that was a mistake. Let's not do that. He can't do that. So he talks to his advisors and says, what do we do? And he issues a second edict. And the second edict was very simple. The Jews have the right to stand up and defend themselves and take action. So he gave the Jews the right to fight, and they did, and they won. And so they executed all of Haman's family, and then they celebrated. These events led to the establishment of the Feast of Purim, a Jewish festival. This documents the background to the Feast of Purim. So whenever the Jews celebrate that feast, the story of Esther is read every year to remind them. Now, here's the amazing thing about it. Purim is the word for lots, to cast lots. It's kind of like a gamble, take a chance. And it highlights the irony that uh, what are the chances that the Jews would be annihilated and God would intervene? So it's a, it's a play on words. It's a, it's a tongue-in-cheek. It's a, it's a, a joke. The Feast of Purim, that God, uh, we found ourselves by chance about to be executed, and God intervened. So we'll call this the Festival of Casting Lots. And that festival is celebrated today. It reflects the irony of how God works. God never does anything by chance. That's the irony. That's why they chose the name. Because it looks as if it's by chance, but it's not. That's the Festival of Purim. So what do we learn from this story? What do we learn? In contrast to Haman, who's very arrogant, Esther and Mordecai demonstrate faithfulness and courage. While God is not mentioned, he is, however, in the shadows at all times. All the time. You can have confidence every step of the way God is pulling the right strings in your life. Every step of the way. He's behind the scenes everywhere you look. The fall of Haman is not accidental or coincidental. It's a story of how God protected his people from genocide through a Jewish orphan, a woman. It shows that God can use anybody, including you, including me, in fulfilling his promise to Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed you you don't have to be successful you have to be faithful Mark and I laugh and joke 
together sometimes about in our role, it's easy for us to receive glory because we're up here all the time helping you to think through some of these challenging ideas. But the reality is the way God fulfills his mission is through you. My job is just to equip you. But you're the one, day in and day out. You're in all of your jobs out there. And God uses you. If he can use a Jewish orphan girl and raise her to the position of queen of a vast Mede Persian empire, then he could use you in whatever capacity God has put you. Maybe it's a career area, a job. Maybe you're a mom getting your kids ready. Maybe you're in high school and you're going to school. I don't know. You know that, and God knows that. And this is that story, that God's plans will not be thwarted. His mission will be accomplished. There's nothing Satan can do to stop it. Even if it looks like it, there's nothing that can happen to thwart it. God did not forget us. That's the story of Christmas and Easter, isn't it? We celebrated both of those, Advent and Lent. God did not forget us. He remembered his promise. We called that a covenant. He came back and he rescued us. We call that salvation. He saved us. And every step of the way, the story of the Bible is story after story of how God intervenes to do that. In preparation for our offering, let me pray. Father, we are a, a grateful people. This story just reminds us of your faithfulness. It reminds us of your sovereignty, that you are in absolute control. God, we are glad that you are God and we are not. And we are grateful that you, uh, you raised up people to help us come to faith in you. Thank you for that. Thank you for loving this creation so much that you involve yourself with us on a daily basis. And now, Father, I pray for this offering. Pray that you would bless it. And Lord, uh, we, so, uh, we so delight in giving back to you. Thank you for taking good care of us. In Jesus' name, amen. As the